Uh, oh man, it's never me that does the intro. And now, for some intro music. Hello and welcome to the, I'm going to call it episode 16 of the Bits and Pieces podcast because I feel this is going to be pretty interesting and warrants an episode in its own right uh, because I'm joined by John Brieger, game designer and game development man. Uh, I prefer the term extraordinaire, but uh, you know. <laughs> I, see, I, I was, I was going to do that and I was like, Does, is that too much? Is that, I don't want to say, you know. Well, for listeners who have not met me in person, they will know that I am, in fact, too much. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I guess people might. Uh, I don't know. What, what do you think you're, you're most known for? I was like, I was thinking your uh, blog on how Rising Sun ended up including a New Zealand man as a a made-up Japanese deity in their game. Yeah. Uh, so, for for those of you not familiar with the story, I, I write on Twitter and on my own blog primarily about the process of playtesting games. So, refining your, your prototype if you're a game designer or game publisher and you're, you're looking to turn your prototype game into a better prototype game. But I also like to play a lot of games. I back Kickstarters and Rising Sun was on its way to me and I was looking on their Board Game Geek page for more updates on shipping because obviously Cool Miniat Simon, who publishes Rising Sun, has a lot of really rabid fans. And I noticed this BGG thread uh, that's titled What is Kotahi? And it's a Japanese user uh, looking at the game, uh, and the game is about Japanese mythology, and says, "I am Jap- I am I am Japanese, and I don't know of any monster called Kotahi." And I was like, "Well, this is interesting. There's a monster in the game the Japanese person doesn't know." And then slowly it gets pieced together that there isn't a monster called a Kotahi, and in fact, a man from New Zealand. Uh, named Kotahi Manawa, he and his friends would edit Wikipedia pages for fun. And at some point, the Wikipedia kind of listicle of list of legendary Japanese monsters was edited to include the Kotahi, a spirit monkey that is very hairy and gets engulfed in rage. And it was very clear at this point that Kumini or not basically didn't check any facts for Rising Sun. There's a lot of other errors, but this one is is the most hilarious to me personally. And so, you know, other people had kind of figured out that this was not a real thing. Uh, my apologies for a, a small alarm that just went off. That's unpleasant. Uh, but... Uh, I was kind of the first one to put together a lot of the story. I reached out to uh, Katahi Manawa himself and got a comment to confirm that this really was what happened. 
and I wrote a big Twitter thread that went viral, and then I wrote a blog article. And so, you know, I write like little tiny blog articles for designers who want to play test their games. And then this thing like blew up and has, you know, I think at this point, like around 500,000 views, which is for real viral content creators, maybe not so good, but for me, it makes me feel really good. Um, so, well, I mean, it made, it made the actual New Zealand news. Yeah. So I think that's probably the thing that, that most people know me for. Uh, but I also design games and have signed a couple games now to publishers and we'll have my first releases in the beginning of 2019. And I develop games. So publishers pay me to help playtest and refine their prototypes into products. And I've finally been ramping up, ramping up, ramping up on the development side of my work. And have enough development work that that is going to be my full-time job coming about two weeks from the recording of this podcast. Which is very exciting and very terrifying. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I caught you at such a, a, prime, a prime moment for, for an interview. Yeah, uh, this is this is the first one I, I've done since it since making that official announcement. Though it's been it's been brewing for a while. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So the first thing I kind of wanted to dive into was your your kind of playtesting knowledge because you have your playtesting tip of the day hashtag. You kind of you've become sort of a, you know the go to guru for for kind of playtesting advice. Your, you've got your blog. Uh, I think I think you're probably the first person to, I guess, ever introduce me to playtesting games. I haven't playtested many, but uh, John and I were uh, for a while I attended this. Well, I, t- I still do, but we attended the same board game group. Uh, and I think you and you brought along some prototypes for for us to have a go at, uh, and then at the UK Games Expo uh, last year. Uh, you were you were demoing your game about the the Mars rover. Yep, yep, that was uh, uh, UK Games Expo twenty seventeen. Uh, and I remember, yeah, I remember you. I think we were chatting, and then we ended up uh, playtesting some guy's game. But I remember sort of. Yeah, and if my mem- my memory serves, uh, I had I had fun. Like we were, you know, we were hanging out. And you know, like critiquing the game, but I remember the game being particularly not good. Yeah, and that I think that was what was impressing me because I sort of I remember being because I, I was kind of very impressed by like the feedback that you had, whereas I was kind of sat there going like the best the best I could come up with was well, I, I didn't find it great. Like I didn't really have anything like I was struggling to think of uh, anything like useful feedback beyond. The, the kind of apathetic feeling that I had, which I think yeah. sometimes you can end up coming out of a game with, and it doesn't feel like a productive thing to share. Yeah, well, and that's and that's the thing I I always say. Like, obviously, I do this a lot. I play test a lot of prototype games, both of my own and other designers, and I think I've had a lot of practice putting my feelings about an experience into words and articulating them. But ultimately, I really believe that if playtest, like, I don't believe there's such a thing as a, a good playtester and a bad playtester. Uh, mostly, though there are exceptions, obviously, for extremely disruptive individuals. 
I really firmly believe that it's the designer's job to ask questions and to probe and to elucidate the not like try to bias people to get the exact comments you want, but it's your responsibility to be able to learn the data that you need to learn. Right. And so I believe that running play tests is a skill. It's a skill you can practice. It's a skill you can study and it's a skill you can learn so that you can always learn the information you need at the end or during the middle of a game. So would you say that so there's like there's a there's a there's a learn there's a learned skill to be found in kind of picking up on the less obvious things that people are saying, like being able to interpret. Yeah, interpreting and knowing when to ask questions and what questions to ask is is absolutely a skill. Uh, so my background is in user experience design and user research. So I've worked the last three and a half years as a professional user researcher where I am studying people's behaviors and using those behaviors to drive improvements to products. And that's a very formal research discipline with real academic body of knowledge behind it about how to run product tests, how to capture comments. And this is qualitative research, but just because it's qualitative doesn't mean it's not empirical and not valid. And I think a lot of people in the board game community, to be honest, it's not a very professionalized community. And so when they're looking for, hey, how do I, I run product tests for my game? They only look at the advice that's specific to games and they don't bring in a lot of the body of knowledge about professionalized product testing and qualitative research that exists out there from other fields. I mean, yeah, so like, what do you think the sort of, I guess like the key kind of starting points do you think that people could like, I guess should learn yeah. in when kind of approaching it? So for me, I, I think the one of the things that I think is most important is go try and play test games for other designers. If you're not meeting up with other people who are doing what you do regularly, you're really missing out on a lot of learning, right? Uh, really kind of think of this as a new industry that you're learning. If you were going to start a new job and you had just never met anyone who did this job and seen them do this job, that would be really difficult. You know, if you were just trying to learn how to be a mechanic from watching YouTube videos, you can, but it's also pretty, it's going to be a lot easier if, you know, twice a week you go meet up with other mechanics and work together and get training. So step one, I think find a community of designers who are going to be able to mentor you. And in the UK, there's a really, really lovely community that's run by uh, Rob Harris uh, and Bez, who are both really excellent at bringing people together. Uh, in the US, it's unfortunately a little more scattered, though I'm, I am lucky to have a, a great community here in the, in the Bay Area. So, so advice number one is, is connect with other designers and form a community. And then advice number two is really practice, really, really treat pl play testing like it's a learnable skill that you're trying to improve. And at the same time that you're trying to make your game the best game it can be, try to make your moderation sessions the best, try to be the best, best play test moderator, play test facilitator you can be. So look at, you know, when you have a play test where you don't learn as much, what changed? Uh, what 
did you ask? What did you write down? What types of notes did you take? Uh, is there anything you could have done better? And really take the, the same critical eye that you turn towards your game design and, and turn it on your playtesting process. And you'll, you'll see leaps and ba bounds of improvement. We're like, ah, I really need to start tracking this data. And I, you know, I ended the, the last two tests and I thought, oh, I forgot to write down when the game started. Now I don't know how long the whole game was. And, you know, even as someone who has done this for a living for a while, I still mess that kind of stuff up all the time. And I don't want to present myself as the perfect professional playtester all the time. But you do you do learn and you do improve. Uh, I, yeah. what's it, so what's it, what's it with kind of, I guess, when you're taking playtests to other designers? Is there a... I don't know, does that, does that influence... Is there quite? Is there quite? A, I imagine there's quite a big difference between taking it to a group of designers to to show off a design versus set like perhaps people that are more casually interested in board games or people that are that rare, like. I mean, it depends on the audience you want to attract. But like, if you were playing it with people that play far fewer board games or don't have a or casual people that play lots of board games but don't ha you know don't have a sort of any foot on the design side. Yeah. Yeah, there is de there is definitely a difference, uh, and this is where I think coming in as a, a professional designer did help. Is inside the design industry, there's generally this concept of a design critique, right? Uh, this is you are showing work to your peers, and they are critiquing and criticizing it with the aim of helping you improve the work and improve your skills as a designer, and. I think a lot of the reason that I take prototype designs to go meet with other designers is I'm interested in their critique as a peer who is a, an expert or at least has a, a deep body of knowledge on games and game design. Whereas when I'm playtesting games with game players who are uh, more representative of the target market for the consumers of my game... I'm there to understand their experience, right? Uh, their, the, the time and the emotions and the reactions that they had to all the different elements of the game. So when a, someone who is a game player tells me that this didn't feel right, I am, am paying a lot of attention. But when they tell me how to fix it, the chances that I'm going to take that suggestion are, are very low. So in general, I'm using those sessions to, to bubble up issues and then find the solutions later. Whereas with a designer, the, the fixes that they suggest are based off of expertise in, in theory. Now, that, that's not to say that I never get great suggestions from playtesters, because I absolutely do, and I, I absolutely have put some of them in games. But my primary goal when I am sitting watching a table of, of players... Uh, do a run through of a prototype game is I want to understand everything that they feel during that game. So I guess it like as as in terms of advice to people that are are play testing games, perhaps kind of maybe out like outside yeah. designer circles. Would you rec like rec basically use of as a recommendation there to like focus on how it made you feel? Don't worry about too much the actual mechanics. Yes, that's that's uh, absolutely. I think if you are providing feedback to the designer and you said, ah, 
at this part of the game, I felt like I was constrained. I felt like I didn't have enough options. That's like the that's the perfect feedback. Whereas if you say, you know, in the middle of the game, I wish I had more cards. The designer, there's a couple different reasons you could have wished you had more cards. Maybe the cards you you drew were not the cards that you wanted. Maybe you wanted to have more options. And so you want to you want to make sure that you shy away from suggesting solutions in the same breath as your comment. So you can suggest solutions, but every time you're you're going to, you also want to go dive back into the root reason why. And this is where in in my opinion the the facilitator or moderator of the playtest also has some responsibility and you're saying, "Ah, I wish I had more cards." And it's their responsibility in my opinion to say, "Well, why do you wish you had more cards?" But if you can start with the feeling and uh, you know, especially for specific moments during play, you're like, ah, when George took the action space that I wanted, that was really frustrating. But it was frustrating in a good way. I felt really tense about it. And mm-hmm. and that's the thing is you want to communicate both what you don't like about the game and what you think made the game interesting, unique, and more fun. So a really good playtester is both giving me criticism and showing me the negative parts of their experience and they're also highlighting the positive parts of their experience not because they want to feed my ego but because part of playtesting games is also figuring out what the most fun thing is and putting more fun into the game yeah no, it sounds like there's a kind of i guess it's a real developed skill to kind of learn the right ways to investigate the those like starting clues that your playtest is giving out so yeah like it's yeah it's, it's interesting how you say to it like investigate i felt like i didn't have many choices that gives you room to investigate as opposed to oh man i hate that i had to roll a six yeah or, yeah exactly or... and so you know on that side there are kind of two major interview techniques that i think are really important for people running playtests to learn uh, and those are called probing and mirroring. So probing is, uh, I wish I had more cards in my hand. And probing is, well, why do you wish you had more cards in your hand, right? It's asking detailed follow-up questions to ensure clarification and get deeper on a subject. And then mirroring is you, you as a playtest moderator uh, summarizing and mirroring back what you believe the experience was for them, right? So... I noticed during round two that when George took your space, uh, you you were a little frustrated. What was that experience like? Uh, so you're you're trying to confirm that you have the right understanding of what they're saying, what they're doing, and the actions that they're taking during the game. So those are those, are, in my opinion, are, are primarily the responsibility of the moderator or facilitator. But as a playtester, you can be trying to think about okay, make, do, I, do I know that they understand how I feel? Is this the best way to express this? Uh, have I, am I providing critique? Uh, that kind of thing as well. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really interesting. That's super interesting. So I think, uh, yeah, I was thinking about uh, sort of ever since that game, the Games Expo last year, just because I like, I think I was, 
I basically spent a long time thinking about like, man, I wish I could have articulated my feedback more, but I get, yeah, like it's interesting to hear that it should just be focused on feelings and yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, it's not to say that again, that other types of feedback aren't important or aren't valid and they, and they don't help make good games cause they, they absolutely do. But yeah, I think it's, sometimes it's you, you finish playing a game and you, I guess sometimes like it's helpful yeah. to examine how you felt about it sometimes because I feel it's that feeling of finishing a game and be like, oh, I eh. don't know how I felt about that. And trying to like, yeah, where you're struggling yeah. to like identify something that made you feel right. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is most of the time the reaction to a bad game is not rage and anger. Most of the time, the reaction to bad games is apathy. So, you know, if someone is really angry about something, it generally actually means that they're invested in, this, in, in the outcome, right? If I'm really frustrated that I rolled that six, it's because I actually really wanted to roll not a six. Uh, whereas if I roll the six, I'm like, oh, again, I rolled a six, whatever. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's much more of a problem. And so... That's to me the sign when a, a play test is like players really didn't enjoy it is that they're just super quiet at the end. Yeah, I mean completely. I think I guess it's like the, I know like I know a game is probably like all of my favorite games. I can think of moments where the game has ended and I've been like I can have very clear images of just the strong emotions that game has left with, and I can think of a lot of games where it's just like I finished it and I'm like. Well, yeah, it was a pleasant enough time. I enjoyed the people I was sitting with, and you know, yeah. I didn't have a bad time. It just didn't leave me with a strong emotion, right? And the and a good game group can, oh, yeah, a good game group can really make any game fun. Uh, if especially games that have a a more social dynamic or or component too, so there's there's that too. Yeah, like completely. I think I, I think yeah, I agree completely. Like I'm not. Uh, I'm not not much of a year game player. Like I not usually not usually what I find particularly exciting. But I always I'm generally perfectly happy uh, to play them with my game group just because I don't have a bad time. I it's it's yeah it's perfectly fine. And it's it's you know it's like the people yeah I think really make like because they make it fun. And and that's that's I think another note on when you're playtesting games. A lot of the times you will be playtesting games with people you don't know. Uh, ideally, the facilitator is probably playtesting some at conventions where they're getting groups of people that don't know each other, some with game groups where they do know each other, making sure that the game isn't 100% reliant on that social connection, but also that if you have that social connection, it's still fun. It's not like this is a game that you should only play with strangers. And I think it's really important not to kind of conflate your knowledge of the game or other people, or not your knowledge of the games, your your knowledge of games in general as a whole uh, with your value as a playtester, right? So either I play a lot of games, so I'm, I must be really good at playtesting, or this person who is playing this game with me at a convention clearly has only played Catan and not much else, so their opinion on whether this game is fun or not is not valid. And that's that's really dangerous, I think, as long as the person who is playtesting is 
reasonably within the target market, which for most of my games is anyone who has played a hobby market game in the last year is potentially in the market for most of these games, right? So like if you have played Catan or Ticket to Ride in the last year, you're still in the market for almost all the products that I produce. Like the chances that you might go out and buy a new hobby game are pretty reasonable. And so I think sometimes people, because they have a deeper body of knowledge and they can articulate their their feelings about the mechanisms and little subsystems of a game more clearly because they've played more games that use similar mechanisms or, or systems, think that that makes them more valuable and then they'll like talk over people and uh, dismiss other people's opinions and it's my responsibility as a moderator to ensure that every play tester feels valued that every play tester feels welcome and included in the conversation and that can be body of knowledge and unfortunately it also can include a lot of racism and sexism where people assume that people of color or women don't have a as deep a body of knowledge and aren't as competent about them and that their opinions aren't as valid and that's a shame uh, but we live in a, a culture and a society where those things exist and games are a social experience and unfortunately that means that people bring outside social norms to the table and you if you are facilitating a play test you absolutely need to be watching for these things because they they will happen to you at some point it will happen at your table and you need to be prepared for for how to deal with it and how to refocus that conversation. Yeah, I mean that's that does seem like a really important point because I guess especially if you're if you're bringing people together who at a convention who don't know each other. So often be like board games are that they're like a comfortable space for the most part where you sit down with people you're acquainted with, fairly well acquainted with or good friends. And so, yeah, I guess that there is a like if you're if you're running a playtest bring people putting together groups that don't know each other. Yeah, yeah. it seems like there's a, a, a danger of other players making other players feel uncomfortable just because they're perhaps just, yeah, how they might be, how they might be with their friends. Yeah. Um, and I think you have a, a higher burden of responsibility as a, a playtest facilitator or moderator than you might otherwise have in a game group. You know, that, that said, you should call out all that stuff at your game group too but the burden of of responsibility in my opinion is much higher ethically when you are are professionally testing a product right this is essentially volunteer labor that the play testers are providing to you and you have said this is a low risk activity that isn't going to harm you in any way and psychological harm is 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 still harm right like you you don't want anyone who is volunteering their labor for you for free to suffer in any way because of that and and that can include a lot of things right that can that can be uh you know harassing comments but you know it might also be tedium and and anxiety and and frustration that's that's not intentional and so you need to be be watching to make sure that everyone at your table is, is doing okay uh, make sure that you're you're comfortable ending games early. Make sure they're comfortable asking for the game to stop. Yeah, and, and those are those are things where I think that's like pretty basic research 101 for qualitative research in terms of consent and uh, ongoing continuing consent. Right, the idea that a a research 
subject or participant can revoke their consent in the middle of the study. And that's the first thing you learn when you learn about qualitative research is, is ethics and, and uh, kind of the, the ethical frameworks involving human subjects research. And I was really shocked when I, I came into the board game field and that's not kind of the headline on every article that's like, hey, how, how do you play test games? Well, first, you need to make sure that you take care of the players who play test your games, right? That's that's that to me is is the baseline standard. Yeah, I guess but like especially with, like you're bringing together so many people in like for a space, you've got to make sure that it's correctly moderated for their comfort and yeah safety. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there's un, there's a lot to to kind of un, unpack in there, but I think board game playtesting still has a, a long way to go in terms of of professionalism. I think there's a lot of people who will listen to what I just said and and think, well, well, that's silly. We're just playing games, and I think those people are are wrong and over the the next five six years as the board game industry grows and and continues to professionalize people will will come to kind of realize like hey this is work this is a real industry this is a job and we can't have that kind of thing in our community anymore yeah no exactly um yeah no so I guess uh, I want to talk a little bit about your, I guess your your role in in game development because that's just, that's something I kind of just want to find out more about in in general because I I don't really know. I guess like what a game looks like as it goes, like what the process is as it goes through development. So I think I was thinking about that, and you, we see, you know, like we see names on the fronts of bo- boxes, and you kind of imagine mm-hmm. the the kind of the the author game designer. Like um, I can see, I can see Twilight Imperium. You've got Christian T. Peterson. You almost, you know, you imagine this kind of mad genius in a workshop, and then he, and then they've just they suddenly produce Twilight Imperium, and they, and that's like, and they they've had the box, and maybe they put it in front of someone, and they're like, give it a playtest. But I guess I like what what does the development process look like, and kind of how does the what's the role of the uh, the development team? Yeah, so so we can kind of quickly walk through the life cycle of a a typical uh, publisher game. So this isn't necessarily like a, a fantasy flight game because they're a they're a large you know Asmodee subsidiary, so they have in house designers and developers. But uh, typically, you have a a board game designer. They've had a concept for a game. They make a prototype of that game. They're going to play test that game with their circle of play testers with, you know, with their friends, with other designers, maybe uh, they might do blind testing where they send out copies to people and get feedback from people they don't know or people who have never met them and not being taught the game from them in person or learning the game from the rules. Eventually, the designer thinks this game is close to done. They start meeting with publishers who produce games and they will sign a contract to license the rights to that game to the publisher. So the publisher gets the exclusive rights to produce that game and typically will pay the designer a an advance on royalties 
then when the game is produced, the designer will get a percentage of every copy sold. So at this point, the designer is mostly done in this relationship, uh, though not usually all the way done. They're, they're primarily finished. Now we're inside the publishing house. Uh, a lot of the a lot of publishers are much smaller than you think they would be. This is an industry that does not have that many full-time positions. So many publishers that we would think of as kind of medium size are, you know, two to six people. And they are queuing up all the games in their production pipeline for the next, you know, year or two years out. They are handling marketing for their and production for their current games. They're dealing with customer service issues. And they're also sitting on a bunch of prototypes that they're going to try to release. So the development process is essentially turning those prototypes into products. Uh, so refining the mechanisms, making sure that it fits the target market. Maybe the game as you signed it has a little bit too much conflict and warfare in it for your market as a publisher and your fans are a little more on the Euro game mm -hmm. side. So you're going to kind of tone down the conflict slightly. So you might, a lot of smaller publishers, the head of the publisher will also do all the development themselves. Sometimes they will hire a contract developer like me who works freelance and will go and play test the games with lots of groups and get feedback and interpret it and suggest changes and maybe even, you know, suggest changes, test those changes and then say, here, here's the, here's the product that I think is best. But at the same time that they're developing the mechanisms and the systems of the game, they're also developing the game as the product, right? So they're, they're choosing final components. They're trying to figure out how is this game going to look best on the table? What's the unique marketing angle of this game? What's the, the thing that it does better than, than any other game on the market or the thing that's going to make a consumer say, I've got to have that, that product right there. And that's not, I don't think that's that's a, a cynical way to look at games. I think often I, I talk about games as products and, and people kind of roll their eyes because they're like, ah, all he all he cares about is whether or not the game is, is going to make money and is going to sell. But I actually think it's really important to have a, a, a strong focus on, on product as a, a publisher mm -hmm. and a designer and a developer because you want people, like let's say you have this really great game and it just looks terrible across the room and it's badly packaged and it's poorly made, even if the gameplay is really awesome, you're going to have a hard time convincing people to sit down and play that demo to learn about your really awesome gameplay. And so having a stronger focus on the product and having a, a stronger, unique marketing hook where you can say, hey, do you want to play a game where blank happens and blank is your, your marketing hook? That's a that's a really powerful thing for being able to to share your game and share that that vision with the world. Mm. So, in how much of the game is there in terms of like the product of it when it when it gets to the publisher? Does it have like is it does art art design and I guess kind of the physical aspect tend to come in a lot with the publisher, or will the the designer kind of put a lot of stuff in beforehand? That's a that's a great question. So, a, a typical game that's been signed to a publisher. Uh, will have, you know, there will be a, a physical game, right? It's not the idea of a game. There's a prototype of the game. It has rules that are good enough that you can learn them without uh, the designer being there, right? There's a rule book you can read and learn the game, though often those rule books are, are not particularly good. Uh, 
partly I think because the person maybe least least helpful to write their own rules to their game is the designer because they're the one who knows the game backwards and forwards. So they, they can't overlook a lot of the assumptions that they're making about the way the game is played and the way people will understand it. But so there's there's a rule book, there is a playable game. Uh, typically those components either don't have art or they have uh, temporary or prototype art. There are some designers who uh, will illustrate for some of their own games. I, I do graphic design for my prototypes to make them look a little nicer, but I try not to, you know, go too overboard pre-production because my assumption is a publisher will, will hire a professional graphic designer and professional artist to fix these things and and make them much nicer than I can make them. So you you kind of have like a this like ugly game that's probably, you know, printed on cheap paper uh, and put into magic card sleeves or maybe printed on slightly nicer cards through a print-on-demand service like uh, Game Crafter or uh, Print and Play, Ad Magic, and then the publisher is is looking at that and thinking, ah, well, I see that they have you know forty wooden cubes, but we could make those custom shapes and people would would like it more. Or those forty wooden cubes could be three hundred plastic zombies. They they could be three hundred plastic zombies, and we can put it on on Kickstarter, and we can start with one hundred zombies, even though we we really want to have three hundred zombies. What if uh, each wooden cube was a garden gnome sized model of Cthulhu? Well, garden gnome that's that sounds a little small. I, this thing needs to be at least larger than a baby. <laughs> and so, and that's the kind of thing that I refer to as as kind of the product development mm-hmm. is coming up with. If, especially for my clients who are Kickstarter publishers. So uh, for the, those of you listening, in, in about two weeks, I'm going to be doing game development full-time. So all I'm going to be doing is helping small publishers who need extra hands turn prototypes into products, uh, which is is really exciting and, and really scary that I am leaving my my current full-time employer to go do this. To give some um, context, I might as well state, state, state the date as we keep saying in two weeks. It's, it's the 11th of August for... Just some time yeah. frame context. So by by the end of August, uh, this is this is all I'm going to be doing day in day in day out, uh, and a lot of my clients, I am doing equal amounts of work on the prototype as I am on helping them figure out how to make their game more marketable. So increasing it, its table presence, suggesting components, uh, stretch goals, uh, unique cool things that you can put into the game that no one else has done. Or maybe there's a, a mechanism inside the game that I think is is really special. And I said, well, you know, if we made this a little, if we tweaked it a little more and just made it a little higher presence part of the game, this could be really special. You're like, ah, uh, this is a game where this thing happens, and and that can be your your marketing angle. If if you're allowed to talk, like I guess to, to talk about some of the projects you've done previously, what do you think is yeah. the most like interesting thing that you've You've, you've tweaked for the kind of marketing aspect to kind of make a game a bit more exciting. So most recently, uh, my my project that wrapped uh, in early or end of July, uh, July 31st on Kickstarter was uh, Rurik Dawn of Kiev from Peacekeeper Games. And this is a really, really wonderful uh, area control game that features a, a new mechanism called auction programming for selecting your actions which is, I won't go deep into an explanation to um, the podcast, but I, I highly recommend you you go check it out. It's it's really, really cool. 
but development for that game was was quite long and we had a lot of issues with the the multiple paths to victory and we were looking very hard at one of the the paths to victory which was trade uh, which is where you're collecting resources from the board and players really weren't finding it satisfying and so we tweaked the visual presentation of trade so that instead of collecting goods and just kind of putting them on a mat you had a visual boat and you lined your goods up into columns in your boat and you got some bonuses for placing them in the right columns in the in, you know in the right order mm-hmm. and it turns out that like tiny little placement puzzle was enough that now players were like i want to put all the things in my <laughs> boat and we found out that in fact for they had been testing this game for for almost a, a year at this point between the designer had worked on it right for a while then the publisher had worked on it a little bit more even before i came on and it turns out all that time they had not caught that in fact trading goods was broken it was the best strategy in the game and just no one <laughs> wanted to do it because it didn't seem like it was cool and now that it seemed like it was cool we actually found this huge balance problem that had previously gone undetected uh, uh, and that's the example of the kind of a kind of work on experience and and feeling that I think a, a developer can really add value is try to make each little part like each little part of your game more fun, uh, make all of the parts more fun, then then balance the end result. I mean, maybe that's an amazing way to to nerf things. Just just make it look less fun. Don't don't change it. <laughs> oh no! But I mean, uh, you know. That ho- I hopefully my my tweaks aren't making the game less fun. No, it's all right. sorry, I, I meant as in if you're if you need to balance the game because something's too, you've uh, you've some a strategy is too strong. Just so replace all of the cool things with less exciting visual things to. Yeah, well, and that that's I think its own problem, which is often I will play test prototypes where the thing that is best to do to win the game is not the most fun thing to do in the game and ideally you want whatever the game is about whatever the game says this is the fun thing that you should do should also be the way that you win and you want to align the you want to align the incentives of I want to have the most fun and I want to win at least in a competitive game you want to make sure those incentives are, are aligned so that you don't have players going off and doing something completely unrelated to winning the game just because it's more interesting than playing the actual game itself. Yeah, I avoided that scenario of, I can't win, I'm just going to mess up everything because it's quite fun and yeah. skew, the, skew the game for everyone else. Yeah, and even even before that, like it's the start of the game, I'm like, ah, I see that I can, I can get sheep. I'm going to become the sheep king, right? Uh, which is a real strategy in a game like Catan. I've done that. Uh, I think the one time I played Caverna, uh, all I did was get coal. And by the end, I was just—I had a small cave of dwarves who had nothing but coal, and I managed to get a thing that forced them to eat coal. And I didn't win, surprisingly, but I had a lot of coal. Yeah. Uh, and so you want to make sure that if there is a thing that is fun, it also is a, a reasonable, viable path to victory. So that's that's a lot of the kind of kind of work I do. Uh, upcoming, I have I think now. 11 or 13 projects that are booked in for end of end of 2018 and calendar year 2019 which is going to be a a pretty wild year i have i'm still taking on a a couple more clients but 
my next project is Lockup, which is from Thunderworks Games. So they're also the publishers of Role Player, and Lockup is a a worker placement auction game where you are all locked in a fantasy dungeon and are trying to kind of make lives your lives more comfortable. So you're you know bribing the guards and uh, you know hiring goons into your crew and you know crafting items. And it's got got a lot of cool kind of worker placement auction stuff under the hood. And that's been, you know, I've just started that project sort of post Gen Con and have been enjoying digging into it. Away from what you've been working on then a little bit, have you, I don't know, just want to chat about what anything that you've played that you quite quite enjoyed. I, I guess you've just been, just been at Gen Con. Was there anything you tried out there that you really liked? So, yeah, I, I do play games for fun too uh it's not just work as i as i've said to a couple people uh since deciding to go full-time in the board game industry uh do what you love and you never work a day in your life but turn your hobby into your job and now what you will will you do for fun so i still haven't quite figured that out yet i think i probably will need a new hobby that's not board games though i will continue to play games for fun i'm sure uh just so that i i can have a, a break at Gen Con, I played a, a couple really, really great games. I really have been enjoying The Mind recently, which is one of those games where when you describe the rules, you're like, well, that's really stupid. And then you play the game and you you say, ah, this is genius. <laughs> and for those of you listening who have, are not familiar, uh, the, the Mind is a deck of cards numbered 1 to 100. You deal some number of those cards out to each player. You know, In round 1, you deal 1 to each player. In round 2, you deal 2 to each player etc up to 10 and then without talking you play those cards in numbered order and if you mess up you lose a life and if you lose all your lives you lose the game and that's it so no communicating play your cards in order and it's genius so is it it's cooperative you're all you're all working together it's a cooperative game and i you know there's a there's something that we we call in in games and though it's actually in kind of any task psychology uh, flow state which is kind of when i think everyone's had that moment right when you're really into something and you're just like in the zone and it feels like you're doing everything right and that's that's flow state and the mind is really good at inducing that in people because you get in synchronization with everyone else and when things are clicking and you're all playing the cards in the right order it feels like you're telepathically connected it's 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 a it's a weird type of table magic that really hasn't been captured in a lot of games so so you're not because you're not allowed to communicate in correct just just verbally or in any way there's a there are two limited forms of communication but they're they're pretty small uh there is a hand gesture uh, you raise your hand to use the special power and if everyone raises their hand you use the special power and you have a limited number of those it lets everyone discard their lowest card uh and then there is you can kind of put your hand down on the table and or I think down on the table and into the center. And that indicates, hey, everyone focus. And then you wait until everyone has their hand in and you pull your hands out. And that's it. Every everything else, all all gestures, you know, pointed glances, etc., are banned. <laughs> I love the idea of just everyone focus. Focus on the thing. I need I need the thing to happen. <laughs> the focus is 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 very important because you wanna it the game is about, you know pretending or maybe actually being telepathic so you want to make sure everyone's everyone's focused and their their mind is is open to your your telepathy uh so 
a lot of fun. The Mind, check it out. Pandasaurus Games, though it has another uh, German publisher as well. Uh, the other game from Gen Con that I played recently that I really enjoyed, in fact, I tried it last night, was Nyctophobia, also from Pandasaurus Games. Uh, I am I am not paid by Pandasaurus. I just <laughs> happen to have two really good Gen Con releases. And that's a game that you play while wearing blacked out glasses, and you play the game by feeling your way through a forest. And it's a one versus many game where one person is sighted and is a murderer hunting you. And oh, wow. the rest of you are scared teenagers trying to desperately find your car. That sounds that sounds amazing. I love hidden movement games, and that just sounds like it's taken hidden movement to the extreme. So last night we we you know we turned out almost all the lights except for one small lamp for the murderer in in my kitchen, and then we played horror movie soundtracks and and played Nyctophobia and had a great time. <laughs> uh, is that has that been released? Or was that a was that on on preview at Gen Con? Uh, that has has been released, and they actually did two editions, one for the hobby game market that has uh, kind of two scenarios in the box and one for Target that has one scenario in the box. But interestingly, the Target scenario is a third different scenario than the one in the hobby market. So you can you can actually buy both products. Really cool game uh, designed by a uh, first-time designer and, and she is is pretty young, I think uh, end, of, end of college age, you know, 21, 22. Wow. And originally designed the game to be able to have a game to play with her blind uncle, which I thought was a really, really cool, very touching story. Yeah, wow, that's a, that's an amazing place to design from. It's lovely. Cool. Well, I think we'll have to just sort of wrap things up there. But yeah, thanks so much for for being on the podcast. Uh, where can what what links should I point people towards to find out more about the stuff that you get up to? Yeah. Uh, if you're interested in learning a little bit more about playtesting, you can read some of my articles online at blog.johnbrieger.com, uh, J-O-H-N-B-R-I-E-G-E-R.com. I also write playtesting tips of the day on, on Twitter periodically uh, at, at dasbrieger, D-A-S-B-R-I-E-G-E-R. And you can find me there to catch up on you know my, my current development projects, the potentially 13 games i'm releasing in the next 16 months and you know feel free to to drop me a message or to to tweet at me uh i love to to give advice i got tons of advice and mentorship from people when i was getting started the industry and i always try to kind of pay that forward so if you're like ah i want to learn how to get into the process of game development or game design or learn how to be a better play tester or learn how to run play tests a little more efficiently absolutely reach out because i'm i'm happy to chat anytime awesome i'll uh, yeah i'll chat links all of that stuff will be uh in the show notes below this when you listen to it and if you manage to find uh this episode of the podcast without our website attached uh you can go to bitsandpieces.games uh or you can follow us on twitter uh which is at bits plus pieces and you can also follow our instagram which is mostly pretty it's pretty board game focused our website is a is a mix of board game video games but our our instagram is pretty board game focused and that is those bits and pieces well thanks for coming on john and yeah thank you so much for for having me on thank you the listener for listening well done well done you it's a very condescending ending i didn't really mean to end it like that but that's 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 how that's happening